The Roy's report grew exponentially in 2021 as we exposed the cult Mark Driscoll is running in Arizona, and we offered exclusive new information about how Franklin Graham betrayed abused wife Nagme Panahi to try and salvage the Save Saeed movement. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and this is a special Best of 2021 episode. In this episode, you'll hear excerpts from our most popular podcasts of the year. These include podcasts about the cult-like church Mark Driscoll is running in Arizona. You'll also hear how Franklin Graham pressured Nagme Panahi to reconcile with her abusive husband, Pastor Saeed. You'll also hear from a former insider at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He'll explain what really happened behind the scenes and why the current apologies from RZIM leaders ring hollow. You'll hear about the abusive, patriarchal system behind the Josh Duggar scandal, and we'll explore what the Bible really says about patriarchy with author Rebecca Davis. Finally, we'll hear from a former vice president at the Master's Seminary about the truth behind John MacArthur and his ministries. This was an incredibly revealing podcast, and it's no wonder it was among our top podcasts of 2021. We'll get to these highlights in a minute, but first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcorda Barrington. Judson University is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, are men of character. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, it's been seven years since Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill Church amid allegations of bullying, plagiarizing, and misuse of funds. But the insanity hasn't stopped. He's rebooted in Arizona. And two of my most popular podcasts of this year, receiving more than 20,000 listens each, dealt with Driscoll's new cult-like church in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Trinity Church. My guests on both podcasts were Chad Fries, the former head of security at Trinity, and his colleague on the security team, Benjamin Aeneas. In this clip, Chad describes his first meeting with Driscoll and his staff behind closed doors. And it's clear, Driscoll hasn't changed his abusive ways. If anything, he's gotten worse. He asked me, he said, okay, Chad, this meeting is yours as the head of security. Um, Kick it off and run with it. So I passed out the handouts to everyone in the room and I started speaking. And not even 30 seconds in, Mark says, he goes, Chad, um, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry, you know, I... I told you, I asked you to run the meeting. Just let me set the stage so you understand where I come from and my background, which I already knew most of his background. But he starts off by, again, just all about numbers. And he said, Chad, just so you know, you know, I'm I'm the largest pastor in the in the Western United States. I have the biggest ministry pe- presence in Southwest United States. I've got millions and millions of people viewing my content online. He said, my episode on like pray.com was downloaded 10 million times in December. He goes on and on with statements like that. It's all I, 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 me, me, me. And that's the very first couple minutes of my meeting with him. And my eyes were truly open to where he preaches on stage. It's all about Jesus. But in reality, the actions behind the scenes are it's all about Driscoll. And I didn't know that that phrase was coined or used during the Mars Hills days until I started Googling it. 
Um, but that's what I started to see right here in this meeting. He was telling me all about him, how great he is, how wonderful he is, how big his presence online is, and how wonderful his ministry is, and how that needs to be protected above everything else. And again, it was all about him and all about numbers from the very beginning. Then he says, he shifts it and he said, okay, so from a security perspective, now that you need know like how big I am and how great I am and my ministry <laughs> is and what we yeah, what we need to protect. Let me give you a little behind the scenes of what I had to go through at Mars Hill. And he says, you know, my family suffers from PTSD. There were, Chad, there were times that helicopters were hovering over my house countless hours of the night, which I've since verified that, yeah, there were helicopters over his house, but not because of him. It's because there was a, a hospital across the freeway from him that had a trauma center with multiple helipads. <laughs> You start listening to what he says and you can start picking out the lies. Then Mark shifted and he was very soft-spoken the first, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. Then he got real angry and he's like, he said, Chad, I, I do not trust a single man on my staff. I don't trust them. Not a single one of them. And sprinkling a few curse words in there. So he's going on and on, Chad. I don't, I don't effing trust any of them. Who knows what they're, what could happen next? He's one thing after another, he turns around, looks at Brandon. Now, mind you, Pastor Brandon Anderson sitting on the couch behind him, not even at the table with us. He's behind him. So Mark turns around and he points at Brandon's face and he yells at him. And he's like, you know, this is your effing problem and you better effing fix it. And just cursing him and yelling at him. And Brandon's face turns blood red. And he turns over, looks at me and looks back at Mark. And he says, yes, sir. You know, I got it. We'll fix it. Yes, sir. We'll fix it. He said, that goes for all the men on my staff. Like you all need to get your in order. And all the men in the room are, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you, whatever you say, sir. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, and that's the type of behavior. And I could see that culture and that environment. Again, this is my first meeting. I'm like, wow, everyone's a yes man. They're literally bowing down, doing whatever this guy says. As he's abusing them. I mean, he's using foul language. He's saying he doesn't trust any of them. I mean, didn't even degrade their manhood somewhat. He, he did. Again, putting them down, he doesn't trust them, just basically challenging their manhood, which is what he does on Wednesdays at Real Men. You know, hmm. The rest of that meeting was just getting into the details of, of security planning and his concerns about people were out to get him and his family. I mean, that was a running theme throughout the next two hours of conversation. So this is what's so sad about pastors like Mark Driscoll resigning their churches only to plant new ones. The abuse continues, and so do the number of victims. But it's not just the abusive and bullying behavior that's so bad. So are the levels of control. On my second podcast with Chad Fries and Ben Aeneas, they describe the cult-like level of control Driscoll exerts at the Trinity Church. This is epitomized by something called the spectrum of trust. I got pulled into another meeting. So it's Pastor Brandon Anderson and Caleb Glenny. So the three of us were in Brandon's office. And he says, so Chad, just so you know, Caleb and I just sat through a couple hours session with Pastor Mark and the rest of the staff where we talked about trust levels and relationships and Mark briefed the staff on what is called the spectrum of trust from a zero to a 10. The higher you are on the spectrum, the more access you get and access to what? He said, all oh, the access to the Driscolls. The Driscolls are level 10. So the higher you get on that spectrum, the more trust and more access to the Driscolls that you get. And he says, so Chad, security team, is like a level nine as a security team because security is very important and you're in these private meetings and you're having these conversations, but 
uh, you're not a 10 because you're not in Driscoll's personal life. You're not like doing security at his house, for example. So um, you're not fully trusted on a level 10, but your team is like a nine. Then he said, so Chad, you're at like an eight. And I'm like, wait a minute, how am I an eight? I'm the director of security team. Security team is a nine. How am I lower than that? That's mentally what I'm processing. Like, what is he saying here? And he's like, you know, your, your wife may be like a six. Ben is even lower than you, Chad, because he can't get his wife under control. He's not leading his family well. He's not leading his household, which is totally false, by the way. Ben is one of the best husbands and fathers and leaders I've, I've ever become friends with or met. I just want to make that clear on the record. Well, and not handling your family well means he's not controlling his wife and controlling her exactly. from speaking the truth or associating with people that the church has deemed she can't associate with, correct? Absolutely. And that's what he continued to say about a few other people. So he says, Brandon says, well, Ben is a level below you. So he's probably like a seven. Um, his wife is, you know, his wife is probably like a level three because Ben's not leading them well. And his wife has relationships with people that the church has deemed as unsafe. These people are toxic, they're demonic, and she shouldn't be associating with them. Then he goes on to say, he goes, Chad, it's like this, you know, as, as men, we're pretty logical. You know, we approach things from a logical way, but women, women are way too emotional and women just cannot cut these relationships. They can't separate, you know, business from, from personal relationships. And if the men can't get their wives under control, then we have to reassess where they fall in the spectrum of trust. What I'm hearing is the church is going to tell us who we can and can't be friends with. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not. We can't say that because we can't tell you who you can and can't be friends with. All we're saying is that if you choose to be friends with these people that are unsafe, then we can no longer fellowship with you. Or maybe you can't serve in a leadership position or serve on security. So you got to pick one or the other. This is so toxic and, and there's major issues of boundaries. There's personal boundaries about who you can associate and what the church can tell you and not tell you to do. And this is where it does cross the line over into, I think, cult-like behavior. I mean, this is kind of definition of, of cult. It may not have bad doctrine, but that seems to always follow eventually because you have to find a doctrine to support what you're doing. But the control is is really the scary level. And Ben, you were on the receiving end of this. You kind of learned through the grapevine that you weren't to be trusted anymore, right? Yeah. Chad comes downstairs and lets me know about this allegation that I'm not leading my family well or controlling my wife, which is comical because why would I want to do that? <laughs> thank you. All of us <laughs> wives, thank you for that statement. And, and honestly, this is misogyny. I just want to say that it is. outright and to say that women are too emotional and to not bless the strengths that women have because they do form such deep relationships. But yes, when you're trying to form an abusive system and run it, those loving relationships that are committed to each other become an impediment. So I can see why he would want to degrade that. But again, that, that's just my editorial comment because that really does make me angry. But go ahead, Ben. It hits a nerve and it should because it's disgusting and yeah. it shouldn't exist. But here we are. Um, it seems to be kind of prevalent within the entire Christian community right now as we look through SBC and mm. all the going on there. I mean, it's it's just sad. It is sad. And I truly hope podcasts like these continue to expose the completely inappropriate ways abusive pastors operate. If you're in a church, anything remotely like Driscoll's, I encourage you to get out and warn others to get out. 
People like Driscoll will be shut down only after enough people refuse to follow them. Well, one of the next most popular podcasts this year was with Nagme Panahi, the former wife of Pastor Saeed Abedini. As you may remember, Pastor Saeed was imprisoned in an Iranian jail from 2012 through most of 2015, and Nagme became one of his most visible advocates and partnered with Franklin Graham and Jay Sekulow in what became a worldwide Save Saeed movement. This movement catapulted not just Nagme to worldwide prominence, but also Franklin Graham and Jay Sekulow. But there was a dark history of abuse behind it all, as Nagme shared in stunning detail on part one of my podcast with her. In this clip, she tells about the time Saeed beat her brutally beginning in 2005. She also explains why she kept the abuse secret and how purity culture played a part. Saeed was trained by Hezbollah, which is a terrorist group, so he knew how to kill with his hands. Next thing I know, Saeed is beating me up. I'm having bruises all over. I have bumps like the cartoons. I remember looking at myself and thinking, I would uh, laugh at Tom and Jerry where Tom would get hit and there would be a bump. And I think Tom is the cat. But I I remember looking in the mirror and thinking there's bumps coming out of my head. Uh, I remember I was getting kicked so many times in my tummy, including in my tummy where the baby was. Mm. And all over my body, punched in the face, in the head, kicked in the face, in the head. I just remember crawling to the bathroom and locking the door, thinking, I'm going to die. And no one's listening to my screaming and yelling. This is the Middle East. (laughs) This is normal. This is, I'm sorry to say it, but this is Mm. normal for a woman to be screaming and yelling, no police, nothing. And that's the first really bad incident. Before that incident, there was pushing and shoving and spitting at me and things like that. But somehow, again, I dismissed those. This beating was the first full-on beating that was a near-death experience. And yet, at that point, you didn't leave them. I, I don't know if it was because of, again, the cultural, the the conditioning that he had already given you to think kind of low of yourself. You justified this somehow. You, you rationalized it. How, how did you do that? That I talked back. I shouldn't have said, so what? He's tired. He's under a lot of stress. I've already been degraded to a point where I just didn't think so high of myself Mm. that I didn't say this is not the way to be treated. And I, and I I was attached. There's trauma bonding that happens with abusers. I'd never dated. He was uh, the first man I'd ever kissed or been with, you know, sexually or anything. I was bonded. I I didn't know how to break free. Mm. And I had two choices. I was pregnant with my daughter. I could walk away and be a single mom, which was, I was deathly afraid of. And that again, in my culture and in the church culture, divorce is taboo. And being a single mom was a big fear of mine. So I had a choice to draw the boundary and say, no, this is it. You just beat me up pretty bad. This is it. Or downplay it, minimize it, justify it to keep the marriage and to keep our family together, which I thought was godly. All the women's retreats that I went to, all the teachings of Proverbs 31 is being a quiet spirit and not, you know, being loud and just submitting. And so I thought, I'm going to do my part and God's going to bless that. The two of you then ended up settling in Boise, Idaho. But two years later, so in 2007, the same thing happens, except this time you're you're actually on a Skype call with his family members, right? Yeah, he was on a Skype call with his parents and his sister, and he was saying things. And I said, that's not true. He was putting me down. And again, I said something like, that's not true. And he left the computer. He came after me, grabbed me by my collar around my neck and shoved me against the wall and started rebuking demons out of me. 
And I saw the same thing in his eyes as I'd seen in Dubai. And I want to say between 2005, where he beat me pretty bad in Dubai until 2007, uh, he accomplished his goal, which was, I was willing to do anything not to get him to that point of anger. I wouldn't talk back. My pastor had told me seeing Saeed angry a few times and seeing my life in danger had told me just cook and clean and don't try to tell him anything. Because I tell my pastor, but he's watching pornography, but I think he's, you know, he goes out to clubs and people have seen him with women. And my pastor had seen him being very aggressive with me, but you know, my pastor's advice to me was just submit and be quiet. And so between 2005 and 2007, I had uh, just, I was the shell of a person. I would submit to anything he would say. I would not talk back because I, I knew that he could kill me. I knew now. And he grabbed me and he shoved me against the wall. And I thought, I'm going to die. And my daughter's sitting, my, my infant 10-month-old daughter is watching this happen. I didn't know what to do. And I just cried out to God in my mind. I thought, God, please deliver me. And all of a sudden he left me. And he grabbed his computer and went to the office and closed the door because he he realized he needed to finish his conversation with his parents before he came back and did what he needed to do to punish me. I was afraid his phone call with his parents was going to be over soon and he was going to come after me. And I just didn't know what was going to happen to my daughter, uh, what he was going to do in front of her. So I called the police and they took him. Despite that arrest in 2007 and later conviction for domestic abuse, Pastor Saeed continued to minister both at home in the States and his native Iran. And when he was arrested and imprisoned in Iran in 2012, Nagme stood by his side. To the world, Pastor Saeed became a hero. But Nagme says the abuse continued, even from prison, as Saeed continued to berate, pressure, and even threaten Nagme. And then came an aha moment when Nagme finally realized that Saeed was abusing her and her silence wasn't helping anyone. So she sent an email to her supporters telling them about the abuse and asking them for prayer. That email was leaked to the press just weeks before Saeed was released. And as Nagme told me, this made Saeed even more angry and the threats increased. Nagme told all this to Franklin Graham, but when Saeed returned to the States, Franklin pressured Nagme to leave her home in Idaho and come with her kids to be reunited with Saeed. When she refused, Franklin secretly put Saeed on a private jet with an entire entourage and flew them to Nagme's home. As Nagme explains in our second podcast, this was terrifying to her. Not only did she fear for her own life, she feared Saeed would take her kids. My lawyer said, if he ever comes, you need to file for a legal separation and a protection order so he can't take the kids and take him to Iran. That was my biggest worry. Then I get a call in the morning from Reuters saying, how do you feel about Saeed coming to Boise? And I said, oh, no, he's not. They're like, oh, yes, he is. (laughs) I was like, I don't think so. I'm like arguing with the Reuters reporter. They're like, we confirmed it with the uh, Samaritan's Purse people. His plane, his private jet has just taken off. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I have probably less than four hours because I'd been on that private jet going back and forth. I thought, I don't have that much time. So I called my lawyer and she said, he cannot take the kids. She said, with a private jet, it's so easy. He just comes, takes them. He's their father. He can do whatever he wants. Mm. He can take him out of state if he wants to. And who does that? When I've told Franklin, I'm afraid Said has threatened to take the kids. Who does a surprise with a bodyguard and Said and his parents and his sister and the marriage counselors? They show up unannounced on a private jet. Like that is traumatic. 
You can hear how Nagme's story ends by listening to the rest of that podcast. All the links for the podcast highlighted in this episode are listed at our website. Just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com slash podcast, and then click on the best of 2021 episode. Again, that's julieroy's.com slash podcast. Well, next we turn to the Ravi Zachariah story, which actually broke in 2020. But the fallout continued in 2021 as numerous RZIM executives issued apologies. Many of them said they were simply duped by Ravi and their worst sin was believing too much in Ravi's good character. Yet one person who was on the inside for years said that's not quite true. His name is Carson Whitenauer, and he served as the U.S. director for RZIM. In a fascinating episode about what's really happening at RZIM, Carson revealed how many of the top leaders at RZIM were culpable for what happened. This includes RZIM vice president and lawyer, Abdu Murray, who earlier this year appeared on a podcast with Sean McDowell. In McDowell's podcast, which McDowell recently took down without comment, Abdu presented a very sympathetic view of his behavior. But Carson tells the rest of the story. We all know that Ravi filed a RICO lawsuit against the Thompsons. And Abdu was there as a lawyer to back Ravi up and say, yeah, that makes sense. And Abdu says in the interview with the McDowells, he thought, okay, this RICO lawsuit makes Ravi look like an innocent man. So if you don't know about a RICO lawsuit and Abdu is saying as a lawyer, this demonstrates that Ravi is innocent. He's putting it all out there. That carries a lot of weight, right? Hmm. But now it's clear that the RICO lawsuit was an egregious response to the Thompsons. It was using a sledgehammer to kill an ant. And and a RICO was picked precisely because it's such an expensive and complex lawsuit. And that was going to create a lot of pressure on the Thompsons to defend themselves and put a lot of pressure on them to sign an NDA. And so actually the RICO lawsuit was a red flag that Robbie was guilty. Hmm. And, you know, a big problem here because Abdu's whole apologetic is that he's a lawyer. He had a, he had a podcast at RZIM called the defense rests. And as an apologist, Abdu liked the RZIM hashtag, no question off limits. But when team members were asking questions about Ravi, we know that Abdu got hostile. So when, when Ruth asked questions, Abdu insulted her and said she had gone from being skeptical to being cynical And it wasn't just what he said, he forced Ruth on a sabbatical and he confiscated her computer and phone to make sure she had nothing incriminating about Ravi on her devices. And he wanted to fire her for her disloyalty. And that was humiliating and harsh and abusive treatment of Ruth. And this is happening at the same time that no one looks at Ravi's phones, no one checks Ravi's phone records, and the board doesn't do anything to investigate Ravi. Those are just a few examples of where there's a major gap between the wisdom of the words Abdu is quoting from and providing an accurate recollection of, of what he's responsible for. I can understand why you and other staff members at RZIM were deceived. The information you've just given makes a little bit incredulous to me is his claim that he had no clue because... He's the one making these defenses. And as you say, he's saying the RICO suit made Ravi look innocent when, as a lawyer, he should have known it was the exact opposite. And so I guess, you know, there's a little bit of skepticism with me that he really believed 100% in Ravi's innocence 
when he has so much, and this is the thing, Abdu had so much to lose. Ravi was his platform too. Ravi and he had just written a book together. That book got deep-sixed because of this whole scandal. I don't know the man's heart, but I will say what you've just told me raises a lot of questions. Yeah. One of my friends says that, again, we don't know anyone's hearts, but given the evidence we have, it's either a question of character or it's a question of competence. And either way that question gets resolved, it's still damaging to their credibility. You know, another angle on this is what Abdu told David French when David reported on Ruth's letter. Abdu told David, it was not my experience that there was a concerted effort to make people feel marginalized or disloyal. And, you know, I have to respond to that. In October of 2020, I was talking with Abdu directly. And in that conversation, Abdu said this to me. He said, let's say we release Lorianne from the NDA or the Zacharias's do, or we say we'll pay for whatever legal fees would be there. She can say anything she wants. She can lie about how many times they talked on the phone. Mm. She can lie about what they said on the phone. And we have no way whatsoever of saying that did or didn't happen. And she entered into that NDA with lawyers. It wasn't like she was sitting in a room somewhere by herself, her and her husband cowering in the corner crying. I mean, I wasn't there, but I do know they were represented by lawyers. Hmm. That is an unbelievable statement because this is after a lot of her story had come out. It's shocking to me that he said that in October. And what we're talking about right now, Carson, we're talking about trust. I mean, trust once broken in the egregious ways that you're discussing here, that cannot be restored with an apology. Yes, forgiveness can be restored. I mean, you can forgive someone overnight, but trust, regaining trust, that's earned over time. And he's, I mean, what you're saying and what you're, you're presenting here is he has such a great deficit of trust right now that to platform him, we're not even close to that stage. Interestingly, Abdu Murray still posts his website online where he's selling his book and touting endorsements. Of course, just recently, Sarah Davis, the former CEO of RZIM, launched her own ministry called The Lighten Group. When they were asked, Lighten refused to answer whether it had received any funds from RZIM. Well, now we turn to a podcast ripped from the headlines. As you may know, Josh Duggar, former star of the TV show 19 Kids and Counting, was convicted just weeks ago of possessing child porn. This caps a string of bad behavior, including a pornography addiction and a membership to Ashley Madison, an online dating service for married people. So why, after all Josh Duggar's done, does his wife stay married to him? And what kind of culture produces a family like the Duggars? In a fascinating podcast, Emily Elizabeth Anderson answers that question. Emily was one of 19 women who brought a sexual abuse and harassment lawsuit against Bill Gothard, creator of the Institute in Basic Life Principles. This is the community in which Josh Duggar was raised. And according to Emily, it's an abusive, patriarchal system that's very difficult to leave. I want people to understand that if Anna were to divorce, which we can get that into that in a minute, how divorce is never, ever, ever allowed. But if she were, 
she's not just, it's not just walking away from her marriage, but she's going to have to reckon with the idea of going against a belief system she's been raised in her entire life. So that means getting a divorce, which is never allowed. That means getting out of authority of her husband, which means she is now open to attacks from Satan, which means she could be attacked. She could be killed. One of her children could be murdered. She could get in a car wreck. I mean, like every horrible disaster situation you can think of, she's been told is now a possibility that God's going to allow that as punishment for her being out of authority Hmm. of her husband. And then they also put on top of this that a wife can never refuse her husband. I remember in 2015 when Josh Duggar's affairs and the abuse all came out, the pastor of Josh Duggar got up in the midst of all this and actually said, if a husband or wife fails to keep his or her partner sexually happy, they are opening themselves up to the attack of the enemy. And that enemy is going to take your spouse away from you. So basically blaming the woman, if you're, if your husband does have an, have an affair like Josh did, it's probably yes. your fault because you're not fulfilling him. Absolutely. Because women are taught that men have this insatiable, out of control sex drive and that he's got to want it all the time and you've got to always give it to him or else he's got to strike. A woman is taught that her body no longer belongs to her, which it does come from a verse, but it actually, again, is mutual. It means that the husband and wife You're giving your body to one another, but that doesn't mean that you lose all right to say no, but it's made one-sided that, Hey, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to your husband. So you need to always comply to whatever he wants. And women are constantly pumped with this fear that if they don't give their husband sex, every time he wants it, he's going to go off and have an affair or he's going to look at porn or whatever it is. She's always blamed for any kind of infidelity because she's told, well, she just didn't give him enough sex. Hmm. Again, fear. The woman's constantly kept in fear. It doesn't sound like there's very much preaching on husbands loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, the husband should be constantly thinking about how can he love his wife? How can he sacrifice for his wife? How can he, as the head of the family, be the first to initiate and do what Christ did, which wasn't come and demand things of us, but come and serve us? I mean, this is just so perverse. There's there's no gospel. Yes. There's a well-known blogger who teaches everything that ATI does. I don't know her exact connections, but Mm -hmm. she teaches all the fundamentalist teaching. And she has flat out said, it doesn't matter, just talking to the woman, it doesn't matter if you're in pain, if you're hurting, grit your teeth and bear it because this is how you serve your husband. You continue to have sex, even if it's painful. And then for the few times she's medically not allowed. So for instance, during postpartum, when she's cleared by a physician to have sex, she is told she needs that this is an incredibly difficult time for her husband. And it's going to be very tempting for him to stray. And so in order to help him, she needs to continue to give him release in other ways. So again, it's like, never mind that this woman just went through childbirth and her body is going through massive changes and she's trying to heal from such a physically traumatic event. No, it's, this is a hard time for the husband and you've got to do everything you can to give him as much release as possible or else he's going to go somewhere else. And that will be your fault. Hmm. This is just out and out misogyny. It's evil. 
Well, speaking of misogyny, another top podcast of 2021 dealt with what the Bible really says about patriarchy. Movements like the Gothers claim to be biblical, but according to Rebecca Davis, that's not true. Rebecca is the author of a series of books on untwisting the scriptures that were used to tie you up, gag you, and tangle your mind. And as she explains in a popular podcast with me, many of the Bible verses used to promote patriarchy are taken out of context, and then they're used to silence women and also abuse victims. One example of this is the patriarchal teaching on Colossians 4, 6, a verse that says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Some say this means you can't say anything negative about anyone ever. Rebecca disagrees. The cover of this book has a woman reading the Bible with duct tape over her mouth. That's what's happening in with mm. so many of these scriptures. And, and people will hear a scripture like that in counseling or from their Christian leader in church, and they won't know what to do. In fact, this particular chapter is the results of someone asking me that very question. Like I was told this in counseling and now I feel like I can't talk about my abuse. Mm. So I talk about what it means for our speech to be seasoned with salt, what are for our speech to be gracious. And of course we do want to have gracious speech. We do want to have speech seasoned with salt. So what do these things mean? They don't mean that we can't ever say anything bad about anyone because we've got to be able to speak what's true in the, in an appropriate context and in an appropriate way, we need to be able to do that. And the saying, the old saying, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. When abuse survivors are told that when abuse victims are told that, well, you're not mm. being nice. All it does is serve to silence those who are being oppressed and empower the oppressors. And so our speech should certainly be nuanced. We don't want to be bombastic. And salt preserves. Salt is a preservative. Far more back in the biblical times when Jesus was, or, or when uh, Paul was writing this, and Jesus also did reference salt. Have salt in yourselves, he said. So that the salt in ourselves is a preserving force. And I think of your slogan, restoring the church. And I think that's the restoring mm. the church. That's a work of salt. It is a purifying work because salt preserves and it purifies. It will kill pathogens. All of these things, the people of Jesus time, the people of Paul's time would have known these things immediately. So when they hear salt, they would have had a whole set of things they would think about. So for us, we need to think about the same things. It's not just be nice. Don't say anything that doesn't sound nice. Don't say anything that makes me feel uncomfortable, but it's have that preserving character in yourself, the restoring, purifying character and the, the character that speaks with nuance. The final top podcast of 2021 was one I recorded with Dennis Swanson, a former vice president at the Master Seminary, John MacArthur School in Los Angeles, California. If you followed the Roy's report, you know that I published numerous articles on John MacArthur in 2021. The most popular one dealt with MacArthur's three homes, large multiple salaries, and funneling millions in ministry funds to his son-in-law. I also published about how MacArthur's church reportedly concealed a COVID outbreak in December 2020. 
This was significant because Grace Community Church continued meeting and defying public health regulations throughout the outbreak, and several church members died. For months, the church refused to acknowledge the outbreak, and MacArthur later accused me in a statement submitted to a California court of spreading falsehoods and creating a false impression. But then in August of this year, MacArthur finally admitted there was an outbreak at the church the previous December. He also admitted that he had had COVID last December, too. But there was no apology for any of the things MacArthur had said or actions he had taken. For many who viewed MacArthur as a paragon of integrity and truthfulness, the entire episode was very disillusioning. But not for Dennis Swanson. I'd like to play two clips from my podcast with Swanson. Both speak to MacArthur's character. In the first, Swanson talks about the books John MacArthur has written, or at least claimed to have written. You told me one time that John MacArthur has never actually written a book in his life. Is that right? That's my opinion, yeah. I, I know who the ghostwriters are, and I know who wrote even the earliest books. I mean, he was a Reformed Episcopal minister, but he wrote the the early books. And they were sermons. So, so they're taking the sermons and sort of massaging, massaging them. and putting right. them into in some readable order. And, and that's kind of when Phil Johnson came in. He had been an editor, I think, at Moody Press, and then he came in to do the gospel according to Jesus. And one thing led to another, and he ghost wrote several books after that. And there's another person right after that who's Nathan Busnitz. He wrote books out of whole cloth. I wasn't there was no ser underlying sermon series behind it. You're saying there's no part of it that was John MacArthur? Other than maybe him looking at it and saying, Yeah, that looks good. You weren't involved firsthand in those other books, but you were in the MacArthur Study Bible? We got a different sections of, uh, assigned to us, different books of the Bible, and we'd create notes. And then Dick Mayhew would edit them and put them together. And then, I mean, the, the, the process was supposed to be then, then John carefully looked at each one and, you know, changed the wording. That was not what I saw. What did you see? I saw him appear every other week or so for half hour, 45 minutes in this little room where, where Dick had taken a little conference room and created the whole where the study Bible was produced. The study Bible, in my view, was 80% Dick Mayhew taking the stuff that the seminary had created, re-editing it, and, and John doing something. But I mean, the idea that he looked at every single note and, and checked them all, I, I, I rather doubt that happened. Is it unusual, though, in the publishing business? I guess for big name authors and things like that, it might not be unusual. I question it ethically at a certain level. If everyone thinks you did this and you really didn't, and you don't really do anything to dissuade people of that fact. So did you write a portion of it? I, I re redid a lot of the notes in uh, Proverbs that had to be taken a look at. And I over I, I went through and checked the notes for, I used to teach the archaeology class. So I checked the notes on archaeology and suggested a few here and there that, mm -hmm. that occurred. And, you know, some of them were there. You did actually write a chapter, though, as I understand, in a counseling book. Yeah. There were three books in a series that um, I think Word ended up publishing them. One was the um, a book on preaching. Uh, another one was on pastoral ministry. And then there was a book on counseling. I did uh, a lot of the editing, just you know, proofreading and things like that. And then I did one chapter where I compiled it. It was a frequently asked question chapter. I wrote some of the answers and a lot of the contributors answered it as well. And it came out and it was well done. It was well received. And then, oh, about two years later, 
the book was being reissued. I think they, they tinkered with the title. I think they changed all of the titles of those slightly and reissued them. And when the new one came out, and I'm working in the library, so I see a lot of the new books. And so, oh, the new counseling book came out. And I said, oh, let me look at it. And I'm skimming through it. And I come to the chapter that I had done, and my name wasn't there anymore. It was now John MacArthur. Just like that. Just like that. As concerning as what you just heard is, it's not the most concerning thing Dennis Watson told me. What's even more concerning is the culture of fear, intimidation, and spiritual abuse that MacArthur reportedly fosters. This culture, and also blatant nepotism, caused the accrediting body over Masters University and Seminary to put the school on probation in 2018. But according to Swanson, that didn't humble John MacArthur. Instead, it unleashed the same kind of virulent backlash that my articles this year did. Dennis explains. It's like a mafia. I don't get any of it. There's nothing Christian about the way they deal with people who don't agree with them. When the school was put on probation by WASC, MacArthur went to the Spoken Chapel and he said, you know, this is a, an organized satanic attack. Right. No, it wasn't. You need to get your house in order. It's not just a difference of opinion. It, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an attack or it's a satanic attack or it's mm-hmm. an organized, orchestrated attack on, on truth. The same thing happened to Austin Doucette, who was the seminary student who spoke out about these COVID guidelines that sure. TMUS had themselves. That was their guidelines that they were flagrantly violating and how he was being balked by professors because he was wearing a mask, these things. And he showed the conversation that was going on in this kind of a a private uh, social media that they had at the seminary, and they were saying, pray for Austin's salvation. Yeah. If you don't agree with them, you must be evil or you're you're just not saved. And and all those things have been said about me. Hmm. It's really too bad because the schools had really good people really knowledgeable people, broad thinking people who could really make the the schools shine. Well, that concludes our best of 2021 podcast. And in some ways, these podcasts reveal the worst of what's going on in our churches. But as a journalist, I've always believed that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And it's my sincere hope that you'll take what you've learned in these podcasts and use it to hold these ministries accountable. I pray, too, that you'll support whistleblowers and victims of abuse. Too often, they become the targets of leaders with secrets to hide. But if we stand with them, I'm convinced we can make a difference. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce. If you'd like to connect with me online, just go to julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. That's julieroyce.com. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review. And then please share these podcasts on social media and help us spread the word. Again, thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report. Hope you have a great day and God bless. Mm-hmm.